Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby, and today, productivity. It's going nowhere, and nobody seems to be able to figure out why. The UK government has launched an industrial strategy to try and tackle the problem, so will the right sort of a government investment help? Or is the problem something more fundamental than that? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Well, in the 1960s, productivity growth each year in the UK was close to 3%. In the 70s, 80s and 90s, it was 2%. In this century, it's dropped to less than 1%. And in the first two quarters of this year, it's actually fallen. It's actually negative. Could that be because uh, some of the most productive people are now moving home to Europe? Well, (laughs) maybe, but no, because it's been happening for a while, as we've seen. And it's a similar story throughout the world. In Australia, for example, labour productivity was more than 2%, uh, right up to the last few years. Uh, From 2013, it fell below 1%. Now there, many people blame it on the economy's structural change. But what's the UK's excuse? In fact, across all OECD countries, productivity growth from 2015 to 2016 averaged less than half a percent, 0.2% for the United States. You see the problem? So what's happening here, Steve? Well, I think it's actually what we a definition of productivity is the ratio of output to the number of people employed. Yeah. We've got labor productivity. And that is statistically, uh, it, it makes, you know, it's an obvious comparison. What are the number of units of output per unit of labor input? But in the modern economy, this comes back to my arguments about energy again. Labor is not the productive factor. Yeah. It's, it's energy harnessed by machinery. And consequently, you can have a dramatic increase in the number of people employed and a fall in the energy throughput in machinery at the same time. Wouldn't, no, well, hang on, wouldn't, wouldn't it go the other way? I mean, if you if you had more machines doing more stuff and you had fewer people employed, you'd expect productivity to increase. Because as you say, it's output per yeah. hour worked. If machines are doing a lot of the work and there's fewer people, <clears throat> you'd expect the productivity to be increasing, wouldn't you? Yeah, which is the, the thing is what's happening, the machines are not being installed. Right. So it actually comes down to the fact that uh, uh, we, the way we define it is output divided by the number of workers. Um, you could have rising amount of output being produced by hiring more machines uh, and, and, the, and therefore the number of workers having a job going down, the output going up and therefore a dramatic recorded increase in labour productivity. What we've seen is a fall in labour productivity. What that translates as is more and more people are being hired. So we're seeing a very, very low level of unemployment in the UK in particular, and a low level in America too. But the level of actual investment in physical productivity and capital has declined. Right. So we have more, more people doing uh, really creative things, like, for example, selling secondhand houses to each other, or even better, selling secondhand <laughs> shares to each other. And, and consequently, they, that doesn't turn up in GDP, but it does employ people. So the measure, the measure of recorded labour productivity is falling. The conventional interpretation is people are being, aren't working as hard, they're not being as productive, et cetera, et cetera. Get a life. Um, what's actually going on is because, they, because aggregate demand is so 
has been so low, except for assets, which, of course, the demand's coming right. larger, being spooked by central banks. There's a decline in the level of investment in actual product, physical productivity. Right. So we're, we're, so we're selling stuff that's uh, not stuff that we've made. So we're being less productive from that point of view. So that makes perfect sense. And that would explain why over many decades, because we've seen, you know, asset prices in, in increasing over, uh, over you know, the last 30 years or so. But... Uh, what about this whole thing about, the, you know, since the global financial crisis? So if we look at the US, for example, the manufacturing sector grew at uh, its productivity grew at 3.2% from 1987. But over the last five years, it's increased just 0.5%. And we can point to figures like that all over the world, you know, since the global mm. financial crisis. Is that just because of the uncertainty? We're just not investing in the in the plant and machinery anymore? Partially. I mean, it's, it's also because the... Um, there, 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 there is a demographic thing in terms of total output, in terms of product output per head, then it does come down to whether you're actually investing or not. And one of the, the weird things that comes out of my little mathematical model, the Minsky model I've done, which is the, the foundation of my overall um, economic analysis, is that if you have a runaway level of private debt, because capitalists are more willing to invest uh, than another situation where private debt doesn't explode, uh, what you actually get is a lower rate of growth. So with, with absolutely no change in the labor in, in the rate of growth of labor productivity, which is uh, in my models, I'm, at the moment I haven't built a feedback between the rate of profit and the rate of change of, of labor productivity, which would therefore mean a, the rate of increase in, in the productive capability of machinery. Um, even with, with a fixed level there, so you don't have a decline, in technological uh, capability, what you get is a lower rate of actual investment. And this, this is one of the, the reasons you, got, you have to understand complex systems rather than just using straight old linear thinking, which is the way neoclassical economists think. Mm. You would think that a higher desire to invest by capitalists would mean a higher rate of innovation and a higher rate of growth. In our system, what it actually means is they're more willing to borrow money to invest they therefore do borrow the money to invest. That increases the claims that the financial sector has on the income of the total income of the society. It actually ends up meaning that that claim uh, fluctuates over time. You get a declining level of investment. Right. So because a higher you, desire to invest means a lower level of investment. Because you owe that money still to the finance yeah. sector. Right. So yeah, and, and yeah, and it's, it's if, if you want to take it as far back, you, you can see in Ricardo, one of the reasons Ricardo developed the theory of comparative advantage um, uh, was that he wanted to eliminate the profits of the landlords and transfer as much money as possible into the hands of capitalists so that we would have more innovation and investment going on there. Because Ricardo did not understand banking, um, he, he was he, he little you know, shell and Petrick convinced everybody about the nature of where growth came from, which was a, another fallacy. But what it what he was correct to say, you don't want money getting into the hands of rentiers who fundamentally will just use it on on profligate living. So in that sense, the rent the rentiers of the, his day were the landlords. The rentiers of our days are the bankers. Uh, the rentiers of his day spent their money on carriages and I imagine snuff. And the, the rentiers of today spend it at a Lamborghinis, and I don't need to imagine I know it's cocaine. So, um, so we we end up you know sniff we end up snorting what should be going into increasing physical productive capacity. <laughs> right. Okay. So 
if I've got this right, I mean, so the, the you know the primary reason that it sounds I mean, in, in part is because yes, we've had a bit of uh, uncertainty since the global financial crisis, so so companies might be a little bit more reticent to to invest in in plant and machinery. But even when they are, they're borrowing the money from the banks. They may be in, increasing their output as a result of that plant and machinery, but then they owe a whole chunk of money back to the banks. So uh, so the banks are claiming a a, a chunk of the, the that value that's being created. So uh, so we're not seeing productivity. In increase because it's just going back to the banks that's in effect what you're saying effectively saying that yeah there's too, too much of the money as, as ricardo himself feared too much of the money is going to uh, the brontier the profligate class and not as enough is going to the capitalist the investing class yeah. and innovating class and uh, as complicated as the argument is that particular insight is correct so I wonder whether that also, I mean, that, that, that subdues the amount of money for the, that you have available to pay people uh, who, uh, who you do need to work to, to work these machines. And we've seen prices mm. subdued. And I'm wondering if there's a bit of a feedback on that as well. Are people less productive because they're not getting so much money these days? Well, they're, not, they're less productive because they're not being hired to produce anything. And this is the other element of it. They get, again, this, the, I hate how everything I say comes back to debt because I sound like a, you know, I'm a one-horse <laughs> pony. I have at least two horses um but um but the, the the fundamental truth is there with the again with out of this very simple model of mine which i now regard actually as being the equivalent to lorenz's model in meteorology um what i what i see is the rising level of debt means the falling workers share of gdp the crisis when it comes along uh involves a uh, collapse in profit share that only happens at the very end of the whole cycle, however. But over the period of time that the crisis is developing, the rising level of debt causes a declining amount being paid to workers, and it also causes a lower level of investment. So by letting the private debt system get out of control, which is what's happened in the last 40 years, we've had a lower level of growth. That's the real cause of the decline in labour productivity. But we've got close to full employment. I mean, that's what, you know, we keep on getting told. I mean, maybe, maybe there's a lot of part-time jobs amongst that. But, uh, you know, we've got more people employed, but we've still got productivity going down. But, you know, as, as you're saying, because uh, the, the benefits of that productivity is going back to the, the finance sector. But uh, wouldn't you expect, you know, as central banks keep on saying, if we've got full employment, we expect uh, that, that, uh, that prices, the wage prices are going to go up. Uh, then you could understand that productivity might be a bit subdued. But the fact that prices have stayed low, even though we've got mm. full employment and still productivity is subdued, is uh, is a curious one, apart from the argument that you've you've just levelled about where that money's going. Well, the other part of it, I mean, the, in the Amer- Americas, you, can't, you simply can't trust the unemployment data. The mm. unemployment data and the employment data have dramatically diverged. So when you actually factor in the number of people actually have a job. It's it's three million in terms of demographic change as well. It's three million less of the twenty-five to fifty-four age group in America than it was in two thousand and seven, and something like five million less than it was in two thousand. So there's been in America's case, they're far from what they used to call full employment. The employment numbers, unemployment numbers, have been doctored over the last thirty or forty years to be a way of punishing people for not having a job. Uh, so I, they're, they're simply untrustworthy. In the UK case, still the same sort of dynamic about, you know, uh, unemployment is you only get recorded as unemployed if you've applied for a job that you know doesn't exist in the last um, two weeks. However, uh, the employment data also seems to match the unemployment data in the UK. And what you have, though, is people are employed on zero-hour contracts and things of that nature. Yeah. So what, what you have is now being called the precariat. So you've been from the days when you had a highly organised labour force here with 
you know, trade unions that were bargaining, their backs were almost quite literally broken during the coal miners' strikes back in what was the 80s under Maggie. And uh, now, yes, there is uh, full employment, but it's wages which have fallen something of, in real terms, about 10% since the financial crisis. So people who are earning a wage are much, much closer to um, subsistence than they were beforehand. So their demand in that sense is lower. Uh, than it would be if they were being paid the wages that were you know, being paid even 10 years ago. And with lower demand, again, you have lower level of investment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, a, and, and a demotivated workforce. I'm sure that is part of it as well. You don't, uh, you know, if you feel as though uh, you're not getting paid what you're worth, you, you're not going to mm. work as hard. That's a large part. I mean, this is what the Russians, and the, the Russian system is worse on that front, not the Russian, the, the old Soviet system, because the Soviet uh, workers used to say they, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. <laughs> and I, I recently saw that very, very obviously when I was in Cuba about uh, maybe six months ago, I think. And I think I may have told you, I, I, um, I, I had a meeting cancelled one day, so I had a free afternoon. I thought I'll go for a swim. And I walked over to the tourist desk at the local, the hotel. And as I approached, I could almost feel this go away, go away wave coming from the tourist staff. And I got to the closest woman and said, oh, I want to go for a, a snorkel at the beach. She said, if you go outside and ask one of the taxi drivers, he'll take you down there. And she turned back to whatever she was, what she was playing with on the computer. And uh, I later on went there and I waited for 15 minutes. And he'll make eye contact with me in this room in 15 minutes. Three women managed to completely avoid making eye contact with me. I know, no, I'm not, I'm not the most beautiful thing on the planet, but I'm not that ugly. Mm. Um, so not so quite. That's, that's not quite. Okay. Uh, we'll talk about <laughs> who's got a better face radio later. Uh, but, um, but the same thing is probably happening with the demotivated workforce. Yeah. You, you know, you're getting zero-hour contracts. You you don't get paid anything. You might turn up at work having commuted there at high expense on the tube system to the job and get there. Oh no, we don't need you. Go back home again. Um, but you know, yeah. it's it's only terror is going to make you work in those situations, and people aren't quite terrified yet. But I'm also wondering whether um, you know another part of it is that we've got now dominant companies that are just so big that they are not as effective. You know, and we've all been there. Well, maybe you haven't, but I've been there working for big companies where you spend your lives in meetings that achieve very little. And uh, you think, well, okay, surely the smaller companies that don't have this meeting culture and this whole bureaucracy that big companies adopt, surely they can uh, they can compete. But I guess you know, if the if the one company is so dominant, uh, are they prepared to make the investment? You know, the the risk right. of investing to compete. So those big companies can have a lot of fat in them, and they do. They just spend their time talking to each other. Yeah, and it's also. Uh you know, this is the other thing about what do they decide to do in those meetings? They decide to buy their own shares back, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, rather than rather than actually using that money to build any any plant. Because you think, well, there's not a lot of demand out there, and if there's not a lot of demand, even though the people there's full employment, uh, the wages we're paying workers are so low that they, they their demand levels are rising anemically, if at all. Why bother investing? We want to give a return to our shareholders, and oh dear, by sheer accident not to draw deliberately, give ourselves a bonus as well. Mm. Uh, let's buy our own shares back and therefore drive up the prices on the stock market. So is there a policy solution to that? I mean, first of all, for that size, you know, the, the size of companies getting so big, it's very difficult for people to compete so they become less efficient. But also, as you say, yes, the, the idea mm-hmm. that, you know, they become so big that they and they've got so much money in their uh, sitting in their bank accounts that they think, well, we won't invest in that in growth. It's much easier to, uh, um, you know, to buy back the company. Is there anything you can do policy-wise to try and stop that? because in both cases, not very good for productivity or for the economy. 
Well, let's actually have another talk about um, industrial policy because um, that's another area I think economic theory is off with the off with the fairies. Right. Uh, and there is this, like if you look back to um, forty years ago, if I ask you what's the most dominant, biggest monopolistic uh, computer company, what would be the answer? Sorry, give me the question again. I asked you forty years ago, what's the biggest, most dominant monopolistic um, comp- uh, computer company? No, oh, IBM. Yeah. Okay. What's the answer today? Uh, Microsoft, Google, or Apple, or Gr- did Apple. They exi- yeah, yeah. Did they exist forty years ago? Uh, no, no. Okay. So, yeah. the, in well, in that sense, the, the 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 actual sort of monopolistic behaviour has persisted. It's the actual monopolist has changed quite dramatically, mm. and there's been dramatic. So, I want to talk about that as another issue. The, I don't think you can do it just by saying we're going to break up big firms, and make them into small ones, which is often the way competition policy is practiced. But certainly. Uh, what you have, if you have absolutely sluggish aggregate demand, which we do have, um, and yet you have full employment at the same time, where workers are being paid so little, and workers are the ones who spend far more of their money than the wealthy do, then you can get trapped into why bother investing uh, anything apart from the luxury market. And in the luxury market, of course, you're producing you know, extremely sophisticated gear uh, with a very small clientele, mm. and you make a profit in your firm in terms of with the, with the central banks on one side buying up all the shares as well, you might as well join the party too. And what you have is a dramatic increase in asset prices, but no particular increase in back we are again, labour productivity. Yeah, yeah. And and I guess so long as people are cheap, you're not going to invest in machines. Um, you know, well, yeah, you, no, you'll, you'll always be investing in machines. Uh, but uh, the, one of the, what, this is one of the actual barriers. The reason that the, uh, the Watt steam engine one of the reasons it was first invented in the UK rather than in France, for example, is that wages in the UK, particularly in Scotland, were much higher than they were in France. And it was actually the squat steam engine would have been uneconomic in France. It was highly economic in the UK because it displaced sufficient labour to save you a large yeah. amount of money. Um, so you actually, in some ways, uh, low wages are part of the explanation why we have low labor productivity because with low wages no encouragement to replace them with machinery less investment so pushing up minimum wage would be a smart move then by that logic yeah 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 yeah. again this is the whole the the, the direct thinking uh does not work in something as complex as a capitalist system so there's actually a whole developing theory called obliquity saying that if you actually want to understand um, a complex system uh, or ch- change something in a complex system, sometimes doing the opposite of what is the direct route is actually the best way to get there. Mm. So if you thought, you know, you think, oh, uh, unemployment's high uh, and investment's low, let's cut wages, therefore giving more money to capitalists who will invest more will grow faster. I've done that. It hasn't happened. In fact, if you put the wages up, you could force the capitalists to invest and then actually have demand to sell into because there'd be workers with high wages before you sack them when you brought in the new technology. But that then gives you that creative destruction, which capitalism's major claim to fame was that capability of generating creative destruction and innovation and growth over time. So the interesting thing is productivity is not just sliding in, in, in developing economies <coughs> or uh, in or developed economies, I should say. It's also on the slide in emerging com- uh, economies as well. So we're also seeing productivity decline in India, in South Africa, in Russia, in China, you know, uh, supposedly big growth areas. 
but mm. productivity is declining there. I, I, get, well, I guess that's the same reason, is it? Because uh, because they're getting financed and the productivity is the, a chunk of that money is going back to the finance sector. No, no. Like for example, in South Africa, the uh, the private debt level is only about forty percent of GDP. Russia's also quite low. So it's. I, I think what's more likely happening there is that as you there is a period where if you do start going from a a, a very unequal sort of feudal style society to a more capitalist one. One of the first stages there is an expansion of the middle class. And while it's still cheap to hire people uh, to do clerical work and stuff like that, when you don't have the, you know, the high wage cost to encouragement to try to replace them with software, uh, it's quite possible you're going to have an expansion of the number of workers who are not directly working with machines. And therefore, if you divide your GDP by the employment rate, and see how it changes over time, you're likely to get that change factor being low simply because you're hiring more workers relative to machines uh, than you would be when you reach our state where we're trying to automate virtually everything and, and therefore you, um, you, know, you can replace, uh, you can replace uh, humans with software algorithms, mm. which don't turn up, of course, as part of, uh, part of investment. And you've got to balance that growth as well, I guess. I mean, that's a, so in China, we, we, we know overcapacity has been an issue. I mean, too much spent on factories that simply aren't needed. So I imagine, uh, you know, that that could be part of the issue as well. That's going to bring the figure down. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I mean, one thing, I, when I was in, um, in China some time ago, three years ago, I stayed there for about a month or so, um, I was fascinated to see the extent of industrial development all over this uh, small only, only three quarters of a million people town called Dayang on the outskirts of the capital of Sichuan. Um, but I also, uh, and I knew I actually met an Australian guy there who was building a new sports car, um, designing a new sports car. So there's plenty of innovation going on and the standard of living was quite reasonable. It was a very comfortable lifestyle, even as a middle-class person there from what I could tell. Um, but what you had as well with these huge recorded levels in employment and factory output and i was wondering where are they getting the money for the factories it turned out that first of all a lot of the factories were established by and owned by the state government now the yeah. state government we're talking a state which even the city governments we're talking city councils employing uh, you know, that have 20 million people in the city council and themselves might employ half a million people they would sell land on the periphery of the council to developers the developers are borrowing money from from state-owned Partly, uh, part of, partly all state-owned banks. So they'd sell, they'd buy the land off the council and then build, you know, massive high-rises which are unoccupied uh, with supposed to be a new town being built somewhere else. That money would go back to the local council and the local council would establish businesses now and then produce various forms of output decided by the local council, uh, which weren't not necessarily sold, but the output was counted as part of GDP. Mm. So you get some, that's a you know, substantial reason why you get some pretty weird figures on productivity coming out of China. So some of these things have rather more idiosyncratic explanations than just my one horse at the level of private debt. Yeah, but I mean, that's a, that raises the question about the importance of government investment. So we talked about how, you know, perhaps uh, because of the caution since the global financial crisis, some companies just aren't investing. But does business need public money to invest in development for the business investment to follow because you know is that part of the problem that we've been seeing for the last 10 years i mean you know we've been through an austerity drive in the uk government's mm. not investing in a great deal 
Yeah, and the, 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 the conventional economic theory has this concept of crowding out. So they say that if the yet the government sector spends more money that'll drive up interest rates and that'll crowd out private investment. In fact, when you do the work empirically, and an old friend of mine, Com Kearney, who was professor of economics at UW at University of Western City when I was there and is now back somewhere in Ireland, I believe, Colm made his name by doing empirical analysis on this front. And what he found wasn't crowding out, it was crowding in. Yeah. So if the government was spending money by, by investing in various areas, like, for example, unlike... Um, a little country you have to spend a bit of time talking to called Australia, investing in a sensible piece of technology like on your fibre fibre to the house uh, internet system, that would generate investment by the private sector to provide matching technologies into it. So if the governments themselves are deciding not to invest, it's likely the private sector won't do it as well. Yeah, well, and it's it's interesting that crowding out argument, isn't it? Because nobody <coughs> would ever say that the uh, uh, the government building a uh, a massive port at Abbott Point. Uh, so that uh, they could export more coal uh, from the private sector was seen as crowding out. They'd see it as being complementary. Yeah, and that's the, the, a lot of the role is complementary. We tend to have this model that we live in an economy which is resource constrained, and therefore the government takes some of the resources that are not available for the private sector. Uh, one of the people I've just written a, a tribute article for, and I've got actually published the article properly on my Patreon site soon, is Janos Kornai. And he's one of the few, I think, really, truly innovative and perceptive economists uh, in the last 60 years. And Janos pointed out that capitalism is actually demand constrained. We have massive excess capacity, mm. and it's partly there for competitive reasons. Uh, so you can actually expand output. Uh, if the government it, it bumps up its demand, there's physical capacity for the private sector to expand output as well, and also to expand its capacity to produce output by investment. So we, we don't live in a shortage economy, and the myth that we do is partly why we're growing so slowly. Yeah, I wonder whether also, I mean, the, 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 we just reach a point. I mean, I was going to ask the question as to uh, whether, you know, the, there's such a thing as a, as a ceiling on productivity, you know, where we're still seeing productivity grow, uh, but perhaps not as fast because we've reached a point where you can't grow as fast. And, and related to that, you know, is is demand and also going to flatten out because I don't I mean just talking personally and this might be you know part of being middle-aged but I don't have this uh, desire to buy as much actually in part because some of the stuff I've bought like my phone does you know things that perhaps 20 devices would have been needed you know and a lot you know a lot of what we're doing is sort of labor saving stuff I'm actually running out of things that I, that I want to buy you know apart from uh, you know the odd pair of trousers and uh, uh, but they're uh, pretty odd too I agree yeah, yeah 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 I mean there's just so much um, there's you know only so many things that you can buy so I just wonder you know what I'm saying are we reaching a point where actually our desire for consumerism is is flattening out we're not we haven't got this same growth gap and similarly uh, in terms of Productivity. What machines can do? Are we uh, are we seeing that slow down as well? I I don't think so because that's actually been a consistent myth in capitalism that have reached that particular point. I mean, you would know the the guy in the American patent office who claimed back in 1900 that everything is ever going to be patented has been patented. We might as well shut the office down. <laughs> that was before the invention of nuclear power. Uh, air flight and TV and a whole lot of other things. So, yeah, but apart from nuclear power, air flight and TV, you know what, what else has been invented? Us, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. apart from the aqueduct. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, there, there is a there is an extent to which we're reaching a, a planetary limit, and yeah. this is I think the, the crucial thing. But if we actually get to the stage, and this is I'm going to sound like a, a Leon Musk fanboy, which of course I am, um, if we get to the stage of off-planet production, then the 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 capacity to produce things for us to enjoy uh, is going to ex- extend quite 
dramatically. However, when I look at it from my point of view and analysing production in terms of harnessing energy to produce useful work, uh, you do you can reach the stage where you've raised the the effective wealth of people so much in terms of their effective energy consumption that they don't want a great deal more. However, we certainly haven't done that for 6 billion people in the third world. So in that sense, it comes back to the income inequality once more. If we actually could provide income for people in the third world, I think we'd see a pretty dramatic boost of demand. But of course, that's not happening. Mm. All right. Just final question on productivity. Let's look at Google. 72,000 people work for Google. It's got revenue of 90 billion US dollars. That sounds pretty productive to me. Yeah. And well, it's, you, you get an enormous amount per, out of per person. Um, because but that again, there's, there's prices and dynamics inside there, and the fact that software doesn't have a doesn't have a, a physical hardware cost. It's um, mm. so you, you again get some investments, and particularly in, in computer algorithms, where you have an increase in output after you have a huge capital input initially, but there's no capital cost after that initial elements that's the zero marginal cost into the world which is another thing we might discuss at length some other time but the fact that that company established itself you know more than 10 years ago i mean admittedly it's it's seen a lot of growth over that 10 years but i'm just wondering whether you know whether there's a a bit of a cycle that develops here so you have a you have a wave of companies like uh, like google and apple uh, which are big on revenue small on employment uh, and you know after they've reached a particular point until the next one comes along and does the same thing you are going to see productivity decline Line, aren't you because of the peak well, that, that was generated by companies like that that's that's partly schumpeter's argument about creative destruction i think it's quite correct uh, you do get these things going in waves so uh, somebody's initial success like for example of course yahoo was the company that first gave us the search algorithm mm. uh, but it was all you know people manually deciding manually searching and manually putting indexes together and google comes along and does it algorithmically and of course that takes over the entire market. If you want to look at uh, technology that is similar to that today, you've got the huge growth in AI and the attempt, the uh, objective of getting AI-based transportation. So car drivers and everything else and, 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 and taxi drivers and truck drivers go out the window. Um, that, that wave has only the very early stages. So if we do get uh, the sort of Schumpeterian investment drive to perfect all that then there could be a boom coming out of that and that'll give us an increase in apparent productivity right and if you want to know children uh, who yahoo is or who yahoo was google it and (laughs) there's the irony uh so i mean just in conclusion then i mean it it sounds like what you're saying though is which is where we started The, the major reason why we're in this productivity slump is because what investment is occurring is being creamed back to the uh to the finance sector and we need to find a way uh of of, of addressing that so the finance sector i guess is, uh, is is investing in you know the finance sector meanwhile of course is investing in uh asset speculation rather than uh, than productive uses and that's not helping either that's really the, the zero thought of cause absolutely yeah all right very good uh great to talk and in a insightful half hour as always we'll see you again soon <coughs> when I stop coughing, okay. He has been struggling a bit with that, hasn't he, over recent weeks. Now, look, next time Steve often talks about the need for debt jubilee, writing off all the debt that is creating so many problems across the world. How would that work in practice? Uh, we'll look at that next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Hope you can join us for that one. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.